is a sort of refresher of where we're at in this book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're going through this chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and our theme has been everyday discipleship. And as we get to love, I can't really imagine a more appropriate theme for everyday discipleship than love. And yet, it comes within a mini-series of the Spirit-filled church. That's what we're looking at, the church and the Spirit. And I want to begin by referencing Pastor Char's message last week because uh, it was really stirring in some really important ways. And if you haven't had a chance to listen, I encourage you to do so. But last, last week, Pastor Char challenged us to look at our gatherings differently, to look around our gatherings and to see where we could use our spiritual gifts to look at our gatherings and to see them in terms of participation. Not passive observance, but participation. And I've been pondering one of his stirring questions all week, and it has really moved me. And his question was this, what are the needs of our church community? What are the needs of our church community? This is where we start. And it, it's a really simple observation, and it's almost obvious. Who needs to be built up? Who needs to be helped? Who needs to be served? You know, and at the risk of making it a little too obvious, you know, look at the person next to you. Look at the person in front of you. Look at the person behind you. These are the people that we ask these questions about who needs to be built up, who needs to be served, who needs to be helped. What are the needs of our church community? And anchoring 1 Corinthians 12 in that question really sets the stage for love. And so a follow-up question we could ask is, uh, how can I use my spiritual gifts to meet those needs? You have been given a gift by God, and instead of focusing on that gift and focusing on yourself, focus instead on the needs of the community and how you can meet those needs. And so we come now to this chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, this hymn of love, probably one of the most famous passages in the Bible. And I think, you know, we've heard it at pretty much every Christian wedding that we've ever attended. But it's more than that. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul spells out why answering these questions are so very important for us, so very important for the Corinthian church. And, you know, often as we look at 1 Corinthians 13, I think we separate them, separate chapter 13 from chapter 12, separate chapter 13 from chapter 14. But really, those two chapters are so similar that one has to ask, why is 13 put here? How does it relate to the chapters it's sandwiched between? And so today I want to anchor this familiar chapter to Paul's discussion about spiritual gifts. And as we walk through this chapter, I want to remember that like any church, at any time, in any place, the Corinthian church had victories and defeats. You know, I think about our church, and I think of the many ways that it, dis that it demonstrates and displays love. And it's so encouraging. But I also think about 
the areas that we need to grow in. Just like the Corinthian church, there were clear signs God and his kingdom were at work among the Corinthian church and also glaring inconsistencies and evidence that their former lifestyles and culture held deep roots in their lives and their community. This is what we've been talking about, right? The church in Corinth was experiencing social, spiritual, and sexual problems, dividing members against one another. I'm sure, you know, maybe we can remember back when uh, we were teaching through the early chapters of 1 Corinthians and almost exasperated, you know, Pastor Brian or Pastor Char get up and, and they have to again give another message on division in the church because it's just so frequent in those early chapters. These were symptoms, though, of a greater disease. And this is what we've been drilling down on this entire series. And what I want to emphasize in this introduction, that the Corinthian church had failed to understand the real-life implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And this is the danger of any church. We have failed to fully understand, or we have stopped understanding, or we have become stagnant in understanding the real-life implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. The community in Corinth, they reflected the culture of its day instead of reflecting the culture of the kingdom of God and its king. And I love this quote that we've been beginning each of these sermons with, from Leslie Newbegin, where he lays out the choice, and he says the choice for the church in every biblical age will always be, will our identity be shaped by scripture or by culture, by the biblical story or the cultural story? Now think of that with 1 Corinthians 13. Paul is writing 1 Corinthians 13 to bring the church back bring them back into alignment with the way of Jesus and the kingdom of God. And this is his declaration that the spirit-filled church is loving and selfless. And Paul begins with a direct, as he often is in this book, yet caring and pastoral wake-up call. Paul begins not by focusing on love itself, but on what happens when Christians do not love. In this startling declaration, Paul tells the Corinthian church that spiritual gifts have become ineffective without love. The prayer language of tongues no longer communicates. Great knowledge, great miracles... Those things don't point to great people. They point to small, petty people. And even a remarkable act of sacrifice, it leads nowhere. Tongues, a big topic in Corinthians and will be a big topic in chapter 14. This language that expresses the deep yearnings or the deep praises of the human heart where one communicates directly to God and God receives those as prayer or praises. Paul says, without love, they're resounding gong or a clanging cymbal, they're endless noise with no clarity. Without love, it's almost anti-communication. 
without love, the clarity, the freedom that one can find in the gift of tongues is lost. It's just noise. And Corinth, in verse 2, is all about knowledge. And it's not basic knowledge. They're about mysteries, the depths too profound for human discovery and the faith that can move mountains. This isn't just saving faith, but faith that does great deeds, great tasks. And Paul says, without love, someone's great spiritual feats, their vast Bible knowledge, all of those things actually reveal that that person is not even worth knowing a wake-up call for us. Look at verse 3. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Without love, these good deeds here, even radical service of others. I mean, think of that. I give my body to hardship to the degree that I'm serving this person and using all my resources, all of my time. It's very difficult for me to give myself in service to this thing. If I don't have love, if I've let bitterness or resentment or any of these things creep up, of course, it explains it. It leads to nothing without love. Now, the Corinthian spiritual gifts, these things were meant to. Paul just laid out in chapter 12, they're supposed to build up the church. They're supposed to serve others, meant to meet people's needs. But spiritual gifts become ineffective because they didn't love others. In biblical terms, we could say it this way. The fruit of the spiritual gifts is rotten without love. These verses are a stop sign. Stop. Pay attention. You need to listen. But Paul is doing this with such care. Right? Sometimes you have to have that direct communication with someone. Stop what you're doing. Listen. You need to recalibrate. Paul goes on, this is what love is supposed to look like. And he defines love in verses 4 through 7 with 15 definitions. Not one, 15. And each of these 15 definitions, though often translated as adjectives in our English Bible, are all verbs. So that reminds us, like we learned as children, right? Love is a verb, right? Even John Mayer sings a song about that. Paul tells us a story of what love does and what love does not do. Now, as we look at these 15 definitions, it's important to understand that Paul's definitions here are directly tied to the Corinthian church. Right? Especially the negative, the negative meaning what love does not do. So Paul is defining this as he understands the Corinthian church's needs. And many of these things Paul's already covered. Some he'll cover in later chapters. But this definition of love forms the center of Paul's longer section. So we've been dealing with the gathered church 
or the gathering of the church in chapters 11 through 14. And this really forms the center of Paul's longer section. And I hope to cover all 15 here. Now, if you're a note taker, you can't, you're not going to be able to keep up with these 15 definitions here. So that's okay. I'll happily send you my notes. My hope is, is that in this list that you listen for one or two, if the Lord leads, of course, three, whatever, but one, one of these definitions that moves you. Love is patient. Love waits patiently. Isn't it true that you wait for those you love? Right? That's what I found over time. I make time. I'm waiting in the car. I'm waiting for a response. I'm patiently enduring a conversation, patiently enduring this. Why? Because I love that person, right? Time is key to making sure someone is good. And Paul's just been referencing throughout this early book that the Corinthians have been rushing to judgment. They've been jumping to conclusions. But Paul says, love is patient. It waits. The word literally means to delay wrath. Yes, you have the power to come down and say, enough. I've heard enough. You've done enough. We're moving on. But it waits. It waits and waits and waits. Isn't it great that God waits for us? Isn't that so amazing that the Lord, that he waits patiently for us? Hence, Paul's drawing this out. This is one of the known characteristics of Yahweh. He is patient. Love is kind. Love shows kindness. While patient, love is patient sort of has this passive quality of waiting, kindness has this active quality of demonstrating warmth or welcoming. I mean, think of how the Christians in Corinth, in chapter 7, when we were dealing with uh, single Christians in marriage, they were pressuring the single people. Like, there wasn't warmth there. There wasn't generous welcome, there's this pressure. But Paul says, love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not burn with envy. I mean, again, you know, Paul spent a lot of time talking about how the non-Christian Corinthian culture sought status over others. You could see that in chapter 3, verse 3. I mean, to the degree that the, the, in Corinth there was rival pastors. Oh, I'm of Apollos. Oh, I'm of Peter. I'm of Paul. But Paul has just been talking in chapter 12, not about envy or rivalry, but he says in chapter 12, verse 26, if one is honored, all rejoice. So it's not about envy or rivalry, but enjoying and celebrating another person. You know, just because this is fresh on my mind, this is one of those things that we're teaching our children right now. 
sometimes, you know, I have three girls, and sometimes one of the girls gets a gift. Like, for example, today is my middle child's ninth birthday. Amazing, right? But there's almost like this, I don't know, rivalry, envy type of a thing. Oh, she got a gift. How come I don't get a gift? We're teaching our children, enjoy your sister's gift. Rejoice with her. Celebrate with her. So often I found that this translates to adults as well. Somebody got a promotion. Somebody got a thing. Immediately you jump to, how come I don't have that thing? They got that thing. I want that thing. Celebrate with them. Love does not boast. Love is not proud. This is a key term or a key theme in the letter. Paul says that love is not inflated with its own importance. As I mentioned, the Corinthians struggled with thinking that their pastor was the best. Right? Thinking that their understanding, their moral reasoning, all of those things were the best. And you know what happens when you think like that? You stop being able to listen. You stop being able to hear. You're, you're inflated with your own importance. And what you've done is, you know, the old King James says love is puffed up. You've filled your life with your own importance to the degree that you're incapable of absorbing other people. All you can think about is yourself. Paul says love does not do that. In verse 5, Paul says, love does not dishonor others. This, is, this one's a great one. The old King James again, or I think it's the new King James, one of them says, love is, uh, love is not rude. I love that Paul's definition of love has manners in it. Love does not behave with ill-mannered impropriety. The Corinthians, they were not courteous to one another. They were thoughtlessly urgent. They didn't demonstrate good manners. Again, you could look at the meal in chapter 11, verse 27, where you have the rich and the poor. There isn't a regard for other people. This one definition, the first one in verse 5, this one definition of love is one of the only, all of them sort of you know, include other people uh, directly and indirectly, but this one is explicitly concerning how other people see you. Do they see you as rude? Do they see you as acting shameful? Are you aware of how people see you? I mean, that's, that's a wake-up call sometimes, right? How do you come across? Now, earlier when we were talking about, you know, uh, tongues, that with uh, out love, tongues is just noise, I think a lot of times we can think about marriage and, or a relationship or good friendship and we can realize that sometimes what we say is not necessarily what our spouse hears. You know what I'm saying? There's a really soft, like, uh, I'm not sure I want to go here with you, Jordan. Like, I'm afraid where you're going to take this. Sometimes what you think you're communicating is not what you think you're communicating. This definition here is a self-awareness of sorts 
Like, you should be aware of how you come across. It's okay to ask somebody, you know, what did you hear me say here? I want to make sure that we're on the same page. That's a loving thing. You're not giving up an inch. You're not, you know, neglecting to hold, hold fast. No, it's okay to ask people if they think you're unloving. Okay, what do you think I'm saying? Let's move on. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not preoccupied with the interests of self. This is similar to one that Paul's given earlier. But again, the Corinthians wanted to celebrate their freedom instead of sacrificing for the other. You could just flip back to chapter 10, verses 24 or 33. Look at chapter 10, verse 33, if you can easily. Paul says there, I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own my own good, but the good of many so that they may be saved. So in this, again, Paul's sort of dealing directly with an issue within Corinth that they were seeking their own ends, their own good, their own pleasure. And sometimes it's okay for us to seek our own good and our own end. But many times we need to understand it's not about seeking our own end. Paul says love is not about that. Love is not easily angered, continuing in verse 7. Paul is saying love is not exasperated by irritating behavior. Ooh, the image here is being poked by a stick, right? Love is not touchy. Love is willing to absorb the issue, willing to absorb the hostility. Are there people in the church, other Christians, maybe even a loved one, who poke and poke and poke and poke? It just exasperates. Paul says you're not exasperated by that with love. Next, Paul says, love keeps no record of wrongs. This is an accounting term. Paul uses it strategically throughout his writings, but essentially he's saying love doesn't keep a reckoning. Love moves a person to, yes, remember things. You can't forget things, but to remember them well. Yes, some of us have gone through deep hurt. And so, you know, not keeping a record of wrongs is easier to say, harder to do. So I think it's important maybe for a minute just to pause and sort of address what Paul means here. When Paul says love keeps no record of wrongs, does that mean that a person who has been severely mistreated needs to just move on? I don't necessarily think that that's what Paul is saying here. That a person just, oh yeah, just move on. It's easy. You need to. You just, all you need is love. Move on. I don't think that that's what Paul's saying. I think instead what Paul is saying is that there's a, a way to remember. There's a way to deal with our past hurts, our past pains. Miroslav Volf, a Yugoslavian 
who was imprisoned and brutally interrogated uh, for months by communist forces, talks about this theme in his book, The End of Memory. And I want to read a quote from it. He says, being in God frees our lives from the tyranny, the unalterable past exercises with the iron fist of time's irreversibility. I got to read that sentence like five times to really just get it. But let's move on in his quote. He says this, God does not take away our past. God gives it back to us. Fragments gathered, stories reconfigured, selves truly redeemed, people forever reconciled. We will not forget so as to be able to, uh, excuse me, we will not forget so as to be able to rejoice. We will rejoice and therefore let those memories slip out of our minds. The reason for our non-remembrance of wrongs will be the same as its cause our minds will be wrapped in the goodness of God and in the goodness of God's new world, and the memories of wrongs will wither away like plants without water. It's important that we understand that Paul is not forcing a person to move on past their hurts with this definition of love. He is talking about basking in God's love how that changes everything. Verse 6 continues our definitions. Love does not delight in evil. Love doesn't take pleasure at wrongdoing. You know, some in the Corinthian church, they enjoyed lecturing people on what sin was. Others secretly delighted if a person or a pastor Lost standing. Oh, I'm glad that pastor lost standing. Reinforces my position. Still others used another person's sin struggle or loss in standing to their own advantage. And then finally, still others found more excitement in rumors than truth. But Paul says, love does not delight in evil. But love rejoices with the truth. In contrast, love is not concerned only with their agenda, only their preferences, only their advantages, but love is open to honesty. Love is open to discussion. Love is not defensive. Love goes to the person in the place of rumor. This is heavy stuff, isn't it? Paul concludes this definition, this list of definitions in verse 7 with a few love always. Love always protects. And all of these use a similar construction. And so, you know, this word always used four times, it shows us something. The love that Paul is defining has no limits. Something He's talking about something else here. This isn't sentimentality. This isn't soapy romanticism. No, love always protects it, never tires of support. It's not, Paul's not talking about servile mediocrity where people are walking all over you. No, Paul is talking about love that keeps confidence. And it endures unto a person's transformation. 
Paul is not saying that, you know, love endures or bears all things in the sense that it conforms to an oppressive system. No, love always protects it, moves us into, moves our society into a new place. Love always trusts, Paul says. It never loses faith. It's confident and, and, confident and rid of any suspicion. But it's still discerning. Love always hopes. No one is beyond hope. I mean, this is just one of those declarations that I feel like we need to write down in, you know, wherever we need to remember it on our, you know, cell phone home screen, on our bathroom mirror, someplace where we see it. Love always hopes no one is beyond God's reach. We just know that. It changes everything. Love always perseveres. It never gives up. It always remains present in the face of suffering. Paul's intention here is not to discourage or condemn. But Paul's intention is to encourage the church to tap into the resources at its disposal. Jesus Christ has died and risen from the grave, and that same power is in the Corinthian church. Love here is not just, a, not just about what the Corinthians are not doing. It's not simply a challenge. Hey, live up to this definition of love. And it's certainly not a beautiful scripture to casually read. No, love here is a force. It's a source of power, and it's found in Jesus Christ. It has to lead us there. This way of love, this way of Jesus is that source of power. Live into that. And this is how Paul concludes in verses 8 through 13. Paul concludes this hymn of love with a picture of what the end of all things will look like. The end of all things is not going to be a barren wasteland where people are just holding on, white-knuckling it, Everything else is destroyed around them, but they're still there. No. We know in part, Paul says, right now, we're trying to fit the bits and pieces together one part at a time right now. Right now, we see a as in a reflection, like a mirror or a screen or on Zoom. Right now, we're having a hard time connecting. But eventually... We're going to see Jesus face to face. Paul says, when the perfect comes, and this is just as a side note, this is certainly the return of Jesus, not the canonization of Scripture. This is Jesus' return, and we're going to see him face to face. And when he comes, something altogether new will come, full of life like a garden, a new heaven, and a new earth. And Paul says, its enduring quality is going to be love. And that love does not fail, does not crack, and does not fall apart. If we're looking at this definition of love here as, as through eyes of only looking at it as a virtue and not looking at it as a source of power from Jesus Christ, I think we're missing it. 
Yes, it is a virtue. Yes, it is defined here in challenging ways that should, hopefully, if I've done a good job listing these definitions, move you to at least pray through one of these ways that you can grow in love, but you pray through it, not in a white knucklet, hope I can become more loving way. You pray through it in the sense of that you're on this way of Jesus with him, and he is in you. If the way of Jesus is a mountain trail, for example, a mountain trail that's susceptible to being washed away by the elements, you know, a flash flood, a gathering of snow, or destroyed maybe in a rock slide. If the way of love is a mountain trail, Paul is explaining that this way of Jesus, this way of love, will never fail. This path will never be washed away. It will never crack. It will never succumb to the elements. It is not under threat. This is the way that we follow. Follow it. It will take you to the end. And this is how Paul exclaims it. Love is our future. That's the future that we're going towards. That's what the future looks like. And so, logically, it should be your present. If it's your future, it should be your present. Look back at chapter 12, verse 31 with me. Paul says there, eagerly desire the greater gifts. These greater gifts here are faith, hope, and love. That's why he goes into this journey and then he says that I will show you a most excellent way. This is the way. It's the way of love. It is an important but difficult journey that we have to take as Christians. And it is hard. Living up to this definition of love is difficult. But it is a path worth taking. That's why he concludes the way he does in 14 verse 1. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. This journey that we're on as Christians is certainly difficult. It's certainly difficult. We live in a very difficult time. And the journey that we are on as the church in America feels especially treacherous right now. But I have been convinced for some time, going back to my years pastoring in the city of Seattle, and I am especially convinced at this time that now is the moment for the church to be countercultural, yes, but to take up the countercultural posture of being selfless and loving. That is our countercultural posture. Not really, you know, attractive posture to take up, honestly. Hard to make banners out of that and, you know, chant war cries, be loving, let's do this. Doesn't motivate donations or get a big crowd. But that's the way of Jesus. We're in an era of radical change. Technology is changing everything. 
We're relearning the way that we learn, the way that we speak. And in addition, we're going through great cultural upheaval. Christians need a clarion call for countercultural behavior. And in my conviction, be selfless should be our anthem. This is a, I'm going to go on a little sidetrack for a second. One thing that I've been thinking about over the weeks in preparation here is I've heard this a lot in the church, and I, I, I just want to point it out, and you know, maybe you all can help me process it, but one of the things that I've noticed is that in the church, we often talk about how, okay, yes, we understand that you know, maybe things didn't go as well as they could have. Maybe this person isn't as loving as he or she could have been, but look at the fruit of their life. Look at the gathering, look at the amount of people that God used to reach them. Look at all these things that happened because of them. Yeah, they're not loving necessarily, or maybe this big scandal comes out after the fact that shows actually, you know, their character is warped. But look at all the people that they touch for God. That way of looking at the world is a worldly way of looking at the world. It is not the way of Jesus. It's not just about all the people. It's not just about all the fruit. It's not just about the biggest gathering. All the things, all the programs. Look at all the hoopla. It's about the character of love. That's what verses 1 through 3 are pointing out. And I... I have, you know, for a long time sort of had an issue with, like, the ends justify the means. That philosophy. But now, even more, as I've prepared for this message, I realize we have to be rid of that in the church. We cannot use whatever, end, whatever means we want to justify our ends. We have to look at the methods. We have to look at the means. We have to look at ourselves and answer if we are loving and selfless. And if the leaders that we follow are loving and selfless. My wife sent me a quote this week, which is haunting, actually, to me. She's watching a documentary, a 60 Minutes documentary from Australia on a church out there in the 60 Minutes person said this, the higher you got up in this Christian church, the more you saw that it was not about following Jesus Christ. The higher you got up, the further you were away from Jesus. God help us. God help me as leader. So how can you or I be more selfless? Well, again, I think that we can answer these questions that Char provoked last week. What are the needs of our church community? And how can I use my spiritual gifts to meet those needs? 
again, just look at the people in front of you. Look at the people behind you. It might be awkward to ask, what are your needs? But there are better ways than what I've put up here to ask. A couple other things that you could take away. What definition of love in the 15 here, what definition of love struck you most and why? Why did it strike you? And if you have the courage, maybe on the drive home or while you're shopping at Costco this afternoon or you're watching baseball or football or whatever, during a commercial, lean over to the person there and say, you know, I was really struck by this definition of love. What do you think about that? Do you think that I should grow in this area? I've always loved those moments when I'm driving with my wife and I'm saying, the Lord's really been teaching me about being kind. Do you think I should be more kind? Oh, yes, I have a lot of opinions about that, Jordan. (laughs) Open yourself up. Another takeaway could be plan loving actions. This is for the planners in the room. You know, whip out your calendar on your phone or your planner or whatever. Write some dates of things that you're going to do that are loving. You know, if love is the future, why can't it be this week? Why can't it be this month? Another takeaway is dwell on Jesus' love. You know, we didn't do this today, but a really fun, encouraging exercise is to look at the definitions here in verses 4 through 7 and to replace love with Jesus. Just think about him. Think about his love. Dwell on that. Dwell on him. The last takeaway that I'll give for you is be filled with the love of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. You know, please do not go out these doors, think, okay, I'm going to resolve to be more kind this week. No, let's go to our Lord and tap into the powerful, loving attitude that comes through his Spirit in our lives.